Okay, good evening, everybody. My name's Jonathan Bell. I'm head of the Institute of the Americas here at UCL. Um, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you all to the official launch of Ewan Morgan's Reagan American Icon. The fact that I can see in the room around me so many current colleagues, former colleagues, current and former students, family, friends, <laughs> means that my job of introducing Ewan will be fairly straightforward one. Um, he needs no introduction to anyone familiar with 20th century American history and politics, having been the author of numerous books on subjects ranging from Nixon to the politics, the very thorny politics of American budget deficits since the Carter years. But today, we're here to celebrate his latest uh, magnum opus, this book here, um, in which he seeks to explain why a president with the good fortune to come into office when foreign policy and global geopolitics was getting particularly interesting, but who in domestic terms was a bit of a flop, to say the least, um, and yet has captured the political imagination of so many Americans and people more widely around the world. It's important to note that this is a very timely book, because Reagan has until recently eluded significant full biographical treatment. Very early, in fact, while he was still president, we started to get journal portraits by journalists, very critical ones like Haynes Johnson's Sleepwalking Through History, and later, slightly more measured perhaps, from the likes of Lou Cannon with his book Reagan, The Role of a Lifetime. But these journalistic portraits were very much of their type. And in fact, Cannon himself found writing a biography very difficult when he remarked that the president's lifelong associates, quote, suspected that there was something beneath the surface they had never seen, but they did not know what that something was. <laughs> so many of the treatments of Reagan over the years that I think have stood the scholarly test of time tend to be monographs on key moments or episodes in Reagan's life and career his early political education working for General Electric, for instance, on their propaganda campaigns in the 1950s that really did so much to shape his later political worldview. His 1966 run for, successful run for governor of California that got his political career underway in a significant way. And books that sort of link Reagan in one book called The Invisible Bridge, a sort of figure in a wider story of the rise of conservative politics in the late 20th century. But for biographers, this subject has remained a very elusive one. As his wife Nancy put it, he doesn't let anybody get too close. There's a wall around him. When Edmund Morris got prized access to Reagan to conduct interviews and research to form a biography, he found that Reagan was so confounding as a, as a at least live historical subject, um, remarking later that this lively, humorous man of speeches and public appearances that we all know turned out, he said, to be dull and lifeless in a one-on-one, -on -one, impossible to get anything interesting out of. So in a spectacularly misguided attempt to understand and explain Reagan, Morris decided 
and Ewan did not take this approach in his book, to render himself a fictional character, working his way into Reagan's life story and calling the resulting memoir Dutch, an advance in biographical honesty. In the words of the New York Times, Morris ended up as Reagan's Ahab, driven mad by his mission to strike through the mask, as Melville's accursed captain put it. When H.W. Brands decided to take on the subject of writing a definitive portrait of Reagan, he found himself reviewed in the New York Review of Books as producing, in the end, a missed opportunity, a disappointingly thin and strangely inert portrait of a president who, given his hold on the conservative imagination, still needs to be better understood. Who better to take up the challenge set out by the slightly unfortunate reviewer than Ewan? His book is a massive research undertaking. No one knows, I think now it's safe to say, the Reagan Library better than he does. It is no surprise that the Times has named this book one of the best politics books of 2016. It is also one of few academic books, and I can speak with a certain amount of envy, that I keep seeing in actual bookshops. <laughs> and I excitedly report to you in every time I see it. And these have ranged from Waterstones in Broad Street, Reading, to Independent Bookshop in Abingdon, Oxfordshire. It's everywhere. But I can summarise the arguments of this wonderful achievement no better than Alex Butterfield, the former aide to Nixon and seemingly regular visitor to us here at he seems to turn up every other month, whose blurb for the book simply says, wow, it's all here, and I mean all of it, in Ewan Morgan's superb biography of America's 40th president. I give you Ewan Morgan. Well, thanks, uh, John, for those very generous words. Um, I'm not sure I do know the Reagan Library better than anyone, but uh, uh, I've been there several times, uh, certainly. Uh, uh, thanks to all of you who uh, have come out on this uh, cold night uh, to hear me talk about Ronald Reagan, and I hope you will stay uh, after the talk. Uh, there is a reception, a modest reception, uh, and I hope to see some of you there and... Uh, uh, have a glass of wine with you. Uh, uh, I do have a slideshow uh, which I'm going to uh, illustrate my talk with uh, in rather typical UCL fashion, uh, though we can't turn off the lights. Uh, so uh, um, I hope you can see uh, uh, my, my beautiful images, uh, uh, which might make my words uh, somewhat uh, more understandable. But I'll begin by saying, uh, <clears throat> if you'd have asked me back in 1980 whether I would have written a biography of Ronald Reagan as the swan song of my academic career, I would have said, you must be mad. Uh, I shared the uh, typical lefty uh, suspicion of Ronald Reagan as a dimwit uh, and a dangerous warmonger. Um, uh, I decided, however, that I would take up the challenge of writing him uh, after a lifetime of studying him. Somehow or other, our paths have always crossed uh, in my uh, scholarly endeavours. Um, and uh, I, in the fashion of most biographers, uh, tended, I've, I've ended up feeling much more sympathetic uh, towards him 
than I ever would have thought uh, I could be uh, when uh, I was going through my progressive left phase uh, back in the late 20th century. Uh, uh, what interests me about Ronald Reagan uh, uh, was that he seemed to... Uh, uh, symbolize and represent so much about 20th century America, or at least white 20th century America. Um, and uh, I thought, uh, uh, if you can see these slides, uh, he, he is, of course, born in the small town Midwest, grows up there, a part of America that has disappeared, but uh, uh, he re represents something of uh, uh, the old Midwestern small town uh, uh, culture, and values, uh, that I found interesting. Uh, he then develops uh, careers in three forms of media in their golden age. He's a radio broadcaster in the 1930s. Uh, he then has a not especially distinguished film career, uh, but not as bad as uh, many people make him out as a film actor. And when his uh, movie career goes uh, into decline in the 1950s, he moves seamlessly into the relative new medium of television uh, to host the Saturday, Sunday night uh, uh, hit series, uh, General Electric Theatre. Uh, whilst Reagan is developing his media career, he's also representative of so much of American politics. Uh, he's present in the uh, Hollywood Red Scare of the late 1940s. This is uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, on the left here, testifying before the House and American Activities Committee uh, about uh, the existence of communists in Hollywood. Uh, the middle picture, this is Ronald Reagan when he was a liberal Democrat. Uh, here he is speaking uh, on behalf of Harry S. Truman on the right there, urging voters to back the Democratic candidate rather than the Republican one in the 1948 presidential election. And then he, in the early 1950s, and progressively more so in the 1960s, he turns rightwards to become one of the most eminent spokesmen uh, of American conservatism. And uh, this is him speaking in 1964 in support of the very right-wing conservative uh, Republican presidential candidate, Barry Goldwater, there on his left. And uh, we haven't even got to his presidency yet. Uh, uh, but here he is, uh, uh, California governor. This is uh, the night he is uh, announced the winner of the California gubernatorial election. And he becomes governor of California at the very, almost at the very time that California has replaced New York as the largest state of the union in terms of population. And uh, California is in the forefront of the development of what historians like to call the Sun Belt of the Southwest and the South. Uh, the dynamic uh, economic growth region which powered so much of American conservatism in the latter third of the uh, 20th century. And finally, uh, somewhat uh, unpredictably, uh, he wins the presidency eventually in 1980, and here he is uh, being sworn in uh, uh, as uh, the 40th president of the United States. Uh, now, uh, I, although I was interested in uh, Reagan and what he represent, represented about America, I found, as I guess every biographer finds, that you can't help being drawn into the individual. And uh, it's here, I think, that uh, uh, I was very surprised in how much I found uh, Reagan to be a sympathetic person. Uh, I decided I would not be thrown by 
uh, all the people who said that you can't get through to him. I certainly found him understandable. Uh, maybe it's because I come from a small village, South Wales, and looking at a small town, Illinois, uh, gave me some parallel with him. But uh, I certainly enjoyed looking at the, um, the personal aspects of Reagan. And uh, uh, I wasn't simply looking at his career in movies and his uh, uh, career in politics. And I think uh, the first thing I'd say about Ronald Reagan uh, is that uh, there were three women that were extremely important in his life. And uh, I don't think you can understand Ronald Reagan without understanding this. Uh, picture on the left here is taken in Chicago in 1915. There's a four-year-old Ronald Reagan there. And behind him is his mother, Nell Reagan. Nell Reagan is the most important person in the youthful Reagan's life. Uh, the father, bit of a dreamer too fond of the bottle, uh, but uh, Nell Reagan uh, inculcates her son with an indomitable spirit of optimism and also a sense of religiosity, very important in understanding Ronald Reagan, his deep spirituality, uh, and uh, she brings him into the Disciples of Christ Church uh, in the uh, a very important part of Midwestern small-town society in the uh, 1920s. Ronald Reagan then uh, goes to Hollywood, and uh, the picture on the, uh, in the middle is of uh, Ronald Reagan with his first wife, uh, Jane Wyman. <coughs> um, uh, she marries him in the belief that uh, he is going to uh, go places in Hollywood. She sees him. She's, she, her career is all eclipsed by his. But soon the situation is reversed, and uh, Jane Wyman... Uh, uh, Jane Wyman's career goes on the up after World War II and Ronald Reagan passes her on the way down and she begins to see him in a different light and what she cannot tolerate about him is an obsessive talk about politics and in the end uh, she divorces him uh, claiming uh, mental cruelty but uh, she tells friends he just bores me to distract her. <laughs> and uh, Reagan, Re this is a traumatic moment in Reagan's life. Uh, uh, he cannot understand the notion of, that he is divorced. Uh, he uh, it's a, uh, is a, is a big blow to his psyche. And he nearly goes off the rail personally. Uh, uh, from about uh, 1948, when the divorce happens, to 1952, when he marries his second wife, let's say... Uh, he has a very active sex life and uh, beds a lot of starlets, uh, but somehow or other drags, drags himself uh, around. And in 1952, he marries Nancy Davis, Nancy Reagan. Nancy Reagan, often seen as the dragon lady who has uh, intense ambition, propelled her husband forward. <coughs> I argue entirely differently. Uh, I see Nancy Reagan as the protector of Ronald Reagan. Uh, she uh, uh, did not want him to become too ambitious too quickly. She was a very, very uh, strong counsellor. She was a sort of emotional rock for this guy. And uh, when <coughs> Reagan became president, uh, Nancy Reagan played the role of enforcer. If she thought anybody was not doing the right job for her Ronnie, uh, she got them in her, her crosshairs and they were not long for the Reagan administration. And uh, uh, she was quite important. Uh, uh, she also uh, pushed Reagan, uh, without too much resistance on his part, 
to, to uh, emphasize more that he was a man of peace and to engage in negotiations with the Soviet Union in his second term. But uh, what you all have to understand about Ronald Reagan is that Reagan had a certain vision of America. It sounds very schmaltzy, and I was uh, quite skeptical of it, but the more you looked into Reagan, the more this became essential to understand him. Ronald Reagan entitles his uh, second volume of uh, autobiography, An American Life, uh, um, because he thinks his rise from relatively humble circumstances in a small town Midwest to movie star and then American president validates the notion of the American dream, that everything is possible in the United States. And certainly Ronald Reagan envisions the United States as a land of endless possibility, but because it is a beacon of freedom, freedom is a word uh, that uh, uh, occurs time and time again uh, in Reagan's life. Uh, he lauds the United States as, uh, as a land uh, uh, which uh, uh, God looks after and intends to be a beacon of freedom uh, for the rest of the world. Now, to secularists like me, you know, you, uh, you take that with a pinch of salt, but if you want to understand Ronald Reagan, you have to take that belief that he has very seriously. Um, of course, Ronald Reagan's idea of freedom changes quite dramatically. He begins as a uh, liberal, a liberal Democrat, and his idea of freedom is very much the one conceived by Franklin D. Roosevelt, freedom from want at home, in other words, economic security for all Americans, and freedom from oppression abroad, and oppression in this case being Nazism and fascism in World War II. But as he moves right in the 1950s and throughout his presidency, right through the end of his presidency, there he is there giving the, uh, farewell, his farewell address in January 1989. Uh, he conceives of freedom more as uh, the need to preserve the freedom of the marketplace, uh, the uh, uh, freedom from big government, and freedom from oppression. But now oppression not from fascism, but from communism. Uh, so Re Reagan's idea of freedom changes dramatically, but he continues to invoke this word uh, throughout his uh, uh, life, not only in politics, but even when he's a spokesman for the movie community in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, was there a Reagan revolution? Uh, people began to talk uh, of Reagan having shifted the tectonic plates of American politics after he became president, uh, putting, pushing America to the right, and by the end of 1981, his first year as president, uh, two journalists bring out a book entitled The Reagan Revolution, and that label sticks. It's a catchy alliteration uh, which seems to capture uh, what uh, uh, Reagan did uh, in American politics. But in actual fact, uh, the Reagan Revolution uh, never really existed. Uh, uh, there was a brief moment in 1981 uh, when Ronald Reagan was on a roll when he had a political blitzkrieg, and the picture on the left shows him signing the two most important bills. He's, at, he's, he's not at the White House, he's at his ranch in uh, uh, California, and the mists are coming up from the Pacific when the picture is taken, and he's signing two bills, uh, one for the largest tax cut ever signed in American history, and the second one 
for the largest cutback in domestic spending ever in American history. So it seemed as if Ronald Reagan had changed things around in his first year and that America had moved from the era of the liberal ascendancy of the mid-20th century uh, to a new conservative era. But Ronald Reagan moved America to the right, but he did not make it a conservative nation. And uh, the picture on the right is of Ronald Reagan signing the Social Security Bill. Now, at one stage, Ronald Reagan wanted to privatise Social Security, but as president, he bows to political reality uh, and he signs an extension of the Social Security Bill, which many people regard as the greatest achievement of the Liberal New Deal of the 1930s. So here is Reagan actually uh, accommodating the Liberal state, and behind him here, uh, Republicans on the left, but behind him here, on the, uh, uh, in the middle behind him is S uh, Speaker Tip O'Neill, uh, Pat Moynihan, the tall one above O'Neill, Liberal Democrat, and the old guy next to O'Neill uh, is Claude Pepper, uh, the, the greatest champion of Social Security in Congress. So, so that's rather typical of what Reagan does. Uh, a, a very, very successful first year in terms of the achievement of his conservative agenda, but then more uh, of uh, uh, a, a stalemate and accommodation uh, with the remainder of the liberal state. As well as domestic politics, of course, Ronald Reagan uh, uh, becomes a major figure in uh, world politics. And this is a picture of him uh, at uh, the uh, Paris Economic Summit of 1982. Uh, now, uh, the two guys on uh, Reagan's uh, right, uh, uh, um, Francois Mitterrand, uh, Mitterrand thought Reagan was stupid. Uh, in fact, the French foreign ministry thought he was stupid and made plain these comments to the point that uh, the White House had to send a representative over to Paris in 1982 and tell them to cut it out or there would be trouble. Uh, but the guy on the right uh, uh, thought all American presidents were stupid. Uh, it's, uh, he's Helmut Schmidt, the Chancellor of West Germany, and he absolutely disdained uh, uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, but when he first met Ronald Reagan in the White House, he was very surprised to learn that Reagan was uh, writing to the, uh, 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 to the um, uh, head of the Soviet Union, Leonid Brezhnev, to propose a summit meeting to discuss arms reduction. And Schmidt who said to Reagan, and this is in you know, an, a, a memoir of their conversation, he said, you know, you really should come to Europe to show them you're not a cowboy or at least somebody who appears in cowboy films. And uh, this was the image they had. Reagan was much too polite, by the way, to point out he'd only appeared in six westerns in his 53 uh, film movie career. Uh, but the lady on the left, of course, was his big buddy, or was she? Uh, the notion that there was a special relationship between Reagan and Thatcher is one dear to the Whitehall mandarins, but perhaps not so uh, highly, uh, not so well grounded in Washington thinking. Uh, yes, uh, Thatcher uh, was very supportive of Reagan, but they quickly fell out. Uh, Thatcher didn't like Reagan imposing economic sanctions on the Soviet Union uh, because of the crack, military crackdown on Poland. Uh, that cost uh, a lot of jobs uh, for British firms who had uh, uh, contracts uh, to help construct the uh, uh, Soviet pipeline. Uh, she was furious with him during the Falklands uh, War that he didn't come out straight away in support of Britain, but stood, sat on the fence as long as he could. 
she was livid with him for uh, the invasion of Grenada, a Commonwealth island, in 1983, uh, in which she didn't even give Thatcher advance notice of it. Uh, and uh, she thought his uh, idea for a strategic defense initiative, the idea of uh, building a laser system in space to shoot down uh, incoming weapons was absolutely crazy and a waste of money. So uh, Thatcher and Reagan had uh, an on-off relationship and uh, Reagan got very fed up of Thatcher going on at him. Uh, he did not like it one bit. Uh, um, the other people abroad that Reagan had to deal with uh, were the old guard uh, in charge uh, of the uh, uh, Kremlin in the Soviet Union. And they, they, were, they saw Reagan as somebody who was extremely dangerous. Here was a guy who uh, used the most extreme anti-Soviet rhetoric. You know, they got used to dealing with people in the 1970s like Nixon and Carter who talked about detente. But here was Reagan ramping up the rhetoric of the Cold War. And uh, they were really frightened by his strategic defense initiative because to, <coughs> to them... If the United States had a defensive capability of shooting down offensive missiles in space, that would give them the opportunity to launch a first strike on the Soviet Union without fear of retaliation. And although I didn't know it at the time, and I can see that most people in this room uh, were around in 1983, that was the year of living dangerously. This is the year, other than the Cuban Missile Crisis of 62, when the world came closest to nuclear confrontation. The Soviet Union was convinced uh, that uh, uh, Reagan was about to uh, launch a preemptive strike when NATO held war games in the North Atlantic entitled Able Archer. And we know now from recently released documents that the people in the Kremlin were absolutely sure that this was a smokescreen uh, for a nuclear attack and were debating whether they should get in a preemptive strike. So we could have had an accidental nuclear conflict because Reagan had absolutely no intention uh, of launching a strike against the Soviet Union. But these three guys, Leonid Brezhnev, Yuri Andropov, Konstantin Chernyenko, who held the the leadership position in the Kremlin for a couple of years. One died, then another held it. Fifteen months later, he's dead, and Chernyenko uh, uh, takes over, and fifteen months later, he's dead. Uh, um, when uh, Andropov died uh, uh, in uh, early 1983, uh, Ray Reagan refused to go. He said, he told him, I'm not going to honor that prick. But <laughs> Ma Margaret Thatcher did go, and uh, uh, there was a joke circulating in Moscow when this, another old guy, Chernyenko, takes over. And the joke in Moscow was that Thatcher phoned up uh, Reagan and said, uh, you should have come. They did it very well. I'm going again next year. <laughs> and uh, uh, true enough, that's exactly what happened. And uh, what happens is that you get a new generation guy uh, 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 coming in, Mikhail Gorbachev, and Ronald Reagan finds in Gorbachev a Soviet leader who wants to reduce uh, tensions, who wants to cut arms spending in order that he can focus on much-needed domestic reform in the, uh, uh, in the Soviet Union. And uh, uh, they have four summits. Here are pictures from three 
this is the first time they met, they get on well, uh, they have a private meeting uh, at a very nice villa in Geneva, uh, then they, uh, they have another meeting the following year, this is 1985, 1986, uh, this is the stricken faces, they're coming out of uh, a, uh, a building in Reykjavik, Iceland, and they have been almost within a whisker of agreeing to eliminate every nuclear weapon that the United States and the Soviet Union possesses. But uh, Gorbachev says, we've got to have an agreement that uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative will be part of the deal. And Reagan will not surrender that. Uh, and uh, they come out and they just believe that you know, they can't get back to where they were, but they, the Soviet Union needs a deal, Reagan wants a deal, and they eventually agree a treaty to eliminate uh, intermediate nuclear forces, which is signed in Washington in 1987. And that's the first time in the nuclear era uh, that uh, the superpowers agreed to cut missiles rather than just simply stop uh, building more missiles. So very significant moment, and this is uh, the fourth and last summit. Uh, this is uh, Reagan and Gorbachev uh, in uh, Red Square. Uh, they've taken a break from their summit, and they're getting on very well, and uh, uh, there's a whole lot of newsmen, uh, of course, uh, watching them, photographing them, and uh, one shouts out, do you think you're still in the evil empire, Mr. President? Now, the evil empire was what Reagan, the words Reagan had used to describe the Soviet Union back in 1983. And uh, Reagan sort of thought a while and he said, no, no, that was another time, that was another place. And, uh, you know, he, he effectively uh, sort of said, you know, we're friends now, we can, we can move on to deal with the problems that, and, and disputes that still exist between us. But... There is uh, a downside. Uh, just at the moment when Reagan is uh, on the verge of achieving his great foreign policy success with the uh, Soviet Union, he's, in, he's also trapped in what is one of the, well, not one of, the most critical uh, moment of his presidency, the so-called Iran-Contra affair. Now, the Iran-Contra affair occupies a whole chapter in the book and I'm sure you don't want me to go into too much uh, confusing detail about what it was. But let me say that Ronald Reagan broke the law in two cases. There's no question about it. First of all, he defied a congressional prohibition uh, on uh, uh, sending financial aid to the Contra rebels in Nicaragua who were trying to overthrow uh, the Sandinista government uh, in Managua. And the Congress had uh, tried to prevent Reagan from getting involved in the conflict because they thought it would turn into another Vietnam, and this time right on America's, close to America's borders. Reagan uh, violates that. Uh, he uh, uh, gets uh, his National Security Council to raise money from rich conservative foreigners and uses that to support the Contras. Uh, and the language of the congressional resolution was quite clear that nothing should be done to help either side in the Nicaraguan civil war. Um, Reagan then, two, year, two, three years later, in 1985, he uh, decides that uh, uh, he has to do something 
to re get the release of American hostages held in the Lebanon by the Hezbollah, uh, a, uh, an Iranian-backed group. And in a deal brokered by the Israelis, um, Reagan agrees to sell the Iranian government in Tehran weapons uh, that it needs uh, to continue its uh, war against Saddam Hussein and Iraq in return for the Iranians securing the, re the release by Hezbollah of American hostages held in Lebanon. Uh, why Reagan should have risked his presidency for a, mo a move that was illegal, uh, there was congressional law preventing the sale of arms to nations known to be supporting terrorism, and uh, uh, Iran fell into that category. Why he, he risked everything uh, on that throw of the dice? Uh, he, you know, he just felt that he had to do something. Uh, Ronald Reagan, you, you know, he saw these hostages as real people uh, rather than a geopolitical problem. And for the best of motives, uh, but uh, he, he takes action. But in reality, he should have steered well clear. Um, one of his aides, one of his uh, National Security Council aides, then unbeknown to him, uses the money raised from the Iranian arms sale to uh, uh, divert that money to support the Contras in Nicaragua. And uh, Reagan didn't know about that, but that was the only thing in the Iran-Contra Iran affair that he didn't know. Uh, he was uh, at the heart of things otherwise. Um, and uh, eventually, as is inevitable, of course, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the secret comes out. Uh, a, uh, uh, a supply, a military supply plane uh, flown by an American pilot is shot down in Nicaragua. And uh, the game is up uh, that uh, the Americans are supporting the Contras. And then uh, a, a newspaper in Lebanon breaks a story uh, that the Americans are selling arms uh, to the Iranians uh, to get uh, the hostages out. And Ronald Reagan then finds himself in the situation that he has to testify in, uh, before an investigating committee uh, uh, set up by his own Justice Department. And he swears blind that he doesn't know about the uh, diversion of funds from the uh, uh, Iranians uh, raised through the arms sales to the Contras. And that is true, but he knows everything else. And he then uh, sort of says, oh, I can't remember. I can't remember anything else about this thing. You know, he tells people he can't remember. It becomes a joke in Washington. Uh, uh, what did the president forget, and when did he forget it? Uh, uh, but uh, uh, although he's cleared from direct involvement, wrongly cleared, <laughs> Um, uh, he's cleared uh, from direct involvement, but he has to go on to, in front of the nation and he has to say sorry. And he says, we did it for the best of motives, and he, explain, he doesn't explain anything about the Iran Contras, about the Contras aid. He just focuses on Iran. And I can assure you that anybody who's read that speech and looked at the documents uh, that uh, are available now for research is lying through his teeth. But of course, Reagan never lies. And Reagan, that's a self-belief that Reagan has. I never lie. And therefore, he can put it over that he isn't lying. But he was. Um, if that's Ronald Reagan's greatest foreign policy crisis, I think that there is another matter that Reagan has to be held to account for by historians. And that's his record of race. Um, 
Ronald Reagan was no bigot, okay? I, 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 I don't think anybody uh, who has read uh, what, he's, what he's written in his letters, in his diary, uh, in his speeches could accuse him of bigotry. But he doesn't understand that African Americans are victims of racism uh, and structural inequality in American society. He cannot understand, look, this is America, he's almost saying, you know, we're the land of the free. But he doesn't understand the specific problems, uh, the, the problems of racism, uh, economic uh, inequality, and so on, uh, that hold African Americans back. So he cannot uh, envisage the necessity for a liberal state to protect African Americans from racism and to preserve their civil rights. And Reagan is always sort of saying, but, but you know, I reach out to African Americans. And uh, this is uh, uh, Ronald Reagan and Nancy uh, uh, at the home of uh, uh, a black family in Washington, D.C. And the little boy there is Ronald Reagan's pen pal, okay? He's a six-year-old who's been selected to be Ronald Reagan's pen pal. And Ronald Reagan takes it seriously. Uh, uh, he invites a kid to the White House. And he, uh, the, the kid invites the president back to have dinner at his home. Uh, and, you know, there are other things I could cite about Ronald Reagan's individual kindnesses to, to African Americans. But contrast that with the fact that uh, uh, he becomes the first president since Andrew Johnson in 1866. And Johnson, by some distance, is uh, the winner of the... Uh, titled the most racist president in American history, uh, although there are plenty of contenders for the title. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, the first president to veto a civil rights bill since 1866. Uh, he's reluctant to make Martin Luther King's birthday a national holiday on the highly spurious ground uh, that King had communist sympathies. He's overruled by uh, a coalition of congressional Democrats and Republicans. And his war on drugs, announced in 1982 to counter a crack cocaine epidemic, results in disproportionately high incarceration rates for young black males. This is the beginning of the racialization, uh, the modern beginnings, I ought to say, been around for some time, but the, the modern takeoff of the uh, racial incarceration uh, trends in the United States. Further alienating African Americans, he uh, uh, is opposed to any form of economic sanction against the apartheid regime in South Africa. He says, oh, South Africa is much too important, a Cold War ally, and uh, if uh, black uh, South Africans took over, you'd have tribal war. Uh, uh, and he, ve he vetoes a congressional bill that has been promoted by the Free South African Movement uh, to the, a bill that imposes uh, sanctions on South Africa, and he is overridden by the Senate, which his own party, the Republicans, controls. And uh, up there on the right, of course, is uh, then Bishop, uh, soon to become Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and Tutu has asked Reagan to support sanctions. Uh, and Reagan, Reagan disliked Tutu immensely. Tutu returned the compliment and uh, <laughs> publicly denounces Reagan as a racist. Uh, uh, if Reagan could sort of, uh, uh, ignore Tutu, one person he couldn't ignore was this guy sitting here on the left. <coughs> you can see him. Uh, that Supreme Court Associate Justice Thurgood Marshall, uh, the great champion of civil rights in the 50s, 
and 40s and a Supreme Court Associate Justice since 1968. And Marshall uh, comes out in 1988 and says Reagan is the worst president for African Americans in the 20th century. Worse than Woodrow Wilson, worse than Herbert Hoover. And of course, you know, Reagan, Reagan is shocked, horrified. And he, there's an entry in his diary and he says, uh, I, I asked Thurgood Marshall to come over to the White House and I explained to him my background and how I didn't have a bigoted bone in my body and I think I made a friend. He, uh, he says, that's wishful thinking. Uh, Marshall had been, you know, did not think well of Reagan ever. Um, so, what can we say in assessing Reagan? Um, the most transformational president since World War II, uh, if there was no Reagan revolution, uh, he, uh, he was certainly America's most successful conservative president ever, in my opinion, and he began a trend of moving America to the right if he'd, uh, while not making America a right-wing nation. Um, uh, he laid the foundation for ending the Cold War on America's terms, and in the book I suggest that he's the second liberator president of the 20th century, that if Franklin D. Roosevelt was the first liberate, presidential liberator who helped to free Western Europe uh, from fascism, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, helped to free uh, Eastern Europe from communism. The problem was that uh, Reagan uh, was highly inconsistent in promoting democracy in other parts of the world, and his record in Latin America, Africa, and Asia is uh, highly questionable. He restored the presidency as a driving force in American politics. The presidency was in crisis when he inherited it. This comes after Watergate. This comes after Jimmy Carter. It doesn't seem to be able to make the presidency a significant uh, 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 leadership uh, element, but Reagan restores it. But in restoring it, as the Iran-Contra episode shows, he also makes it more dangerous to the constitutional order. Uh, a new imperial the seeds of a new imperial presidency are laid uh, and, uh, by Ronald Reagan. His greatest personal attribute, I think, and you know, I, I would never have said this before I started the book, uh, uh, so I, I hope you keep that in mind. Uh, maybe I'm too uh, uh, friendly towards Reagan. But I think his greatest personal attribute was the shining image of America that he carried within him. And it made him an eternal optimist for the future. But his greatest weakness was the flip side of that, the failure to understand that some groups were not optimistic about the future and needed the help of government to get by in the present. Whether his presidency helped to make America a better place or not is an ongoing debate. But with the coming of Donald Trump, we may have cause to remember with some fondness the words that Ronald Reagan spoke in his last major address at the Republican Convention of 1992. And I close the book with this quote. And whatever else history may say about me when I'm gone, I hope it will record that I appeal to your best hopes, not your worst fears, to your confidence, not your doubts. Thank you very much.